welcome to today's panel discussion webinar. It's titled When Brothers Meet at Gemba. I'm Mark Graven from Kinexus, and I'm going to just kick things off and then uh, get out of the way and be part of today's panel, which is going to be moderated uh, by our friend Deandra Wardell. So we're going to be joined by Hugh Alley, Chris Chapman, Eric Ho, Sam Morgan, and Jeff Welch. And you'll hear more about everybody, um, and they'll We'll all introduce ourselves a little bit more. Deandra, you're you're in host mode. Here you go. Okay. Thank you. And welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today when brothers meet at Gimba. Um, so following in true continuous improvement spirit, um, we received some feedback from previous webinars that, um, you know, people wanted to have a better understanding of what was going to happen. Uh, for the webinar session. And so that's why I want to explain today. So we're closing out our second blog series when brothers meet at Gimba. And the purpose of going to Gimba is, you know, Gimba is where action takes place and that's where value is created. And that's where we have the opportunity to make things better. And so in this election season, we're going to the Gimba of the polls, where we make our voices heard and where we make things better through our vote. And so we, the people, are all called to play a part and are all called to continuously improve our beloved country, this great land we call America. And we want to do that by going to vote. And uh, Gimba, activity that takes place when you're at Gimba is you go see, you ask why, and you show respect. And so during um, today's session, each of the panelists will share some takeaways that they want you to have from their blogs. Um, as Mark indicated, there'll be a number of opportunities for questions to be asked, and we'll do our best to answer those questions. And then at the end, we have some calls to action. Um, whenever we come together, it's not just a discussion. We want to walk away with something to do, one small act that we all can immediately execute. So along with voting, there are some other things the panelists will be sharing, okay? So now I would like to introduce you to my brothers. And as I say your name, just wave your hand so they'll know who's who, and then we'll get right into the blog discussions. So up first is my newest brother. Uh, we've recently connected and that is Eric Ho. Eric currently serves as a senior consultant and training manager for the University of Washington Medicine Valley Medical Center. And he is serving on one of the busiest emergency departments on the West Coast. He also serves as the board president of Homestead Community Land Trust, and is one of, which is one of the largest affordable home ownership organizations in the Pacific North, Northwest. So, hi, Eric. Okay. Then we have Mark Graben. Um, he is the author of two Shingle Research award-winning books and has worked as a consultant to healthcare organizations throughout North America and Europe, teaching and implementing Kaizen and other lean management practices. He is also the author of the book Measures of Success, React Less, Lead Better, Improve More. And he's also the founder of the popularleanblog.org and its podcast series. So Mark was blogging, I think probably he was the first one to blog about lean. So he helped, uh, he set the pace for us all to walk in his footsteps. Um, his new podcast series, My Favorite Mistake, launched in September. And he's also an ally, a co-laborer, an accomplice, and getting into some good trouble with the work that we're doing with root cause racism. Okay, so Mark, 
We all know who you are, but still wave your hand. And, and okay. I'll just jump in and say, I wasn't the first to start blogging, but I was in an early cohort. How's that? Okay, that works. Okay. And then we have Chris Chapman. Chris is a senior lean transformation coach at Chapman Lean Enterprise, CLE, with extensive experience across a broad range of industries, including manufacturing, healthcare, and higher education. Chris has over 20 years of management, quality engineering, and lean process improvement experience. Yes, he started working as a toddler. I'm sure you were wondering about that. Um, after the killing of George Floyd, Chris felt compelled to use his problem-solving skill to set to, to help combat social injustice and will soon release a diversity, equity, inclusion, lean value transformation toolkit for organizations and business leaders seeking to create anti-racist cultures. So welcome, Chris. And then we have Hugh Alley one of my Kata buddies. So he was an author, consultant, and speaker. His book, Becoming the Supervisor, was published this year. He is a registered professional industrial engineer and has worked primarily in manufacturing throughout his career. Um, his current practice is focused on helping companies achieve significant operational improvements in three to six months while significantly improving the skills of the leadership team. He consults primarily across North America. So welcome, Hugh. Okay, next we have Jeff Welch. Jeff is an accomplished corporate trainer, leadership coach, writer, and public speaker with over 20 years of experience in the lean, in the learning and development space. Yes, he also started when he was two. He has delivered training workshops, seminars, and keynote speeches for clients in the United States, Canada, Europe, and the Caribbean. He specializes in facilitating instructor-led and virtual training courses, which focus on professional development skills and the Train the Trainer program. Jeff is the president of his own consulting group, JW Training Events, LLC, a lifelong Southerner, and he is a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, a member of the Divine Nine. Okay, and last, but certainly not least, is my other brother, Sam Morgan. Sam is an operational analyst at The Standard with a growing passion and experience for lean and continuous improvement over the last three years. His interest in lean is focusing on respect for people by empowering and energizing them through problem solving and an increased desire to coach. And then if you are not following Sam on LinkedIn, I need you to start today after this webinar at 2.31 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Go follow Sam. Um, daily, he shares his video uh, blog, The 92nd Purpose, and weekly, he has a video feature, CIN5. So he is very passionate about the work that he's doing and very passionate about making a change in the world. So welcome, Sam. Thank you for joining us. All righty. So without further ado, I would like to turn it over to Mark Graben. Um, Mark Graben and I, I've, I've always followed him. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the work that he has done and continues to do around zero harm in the healthcare industry. And um, you know, more recently, the work we've been doing with Root Cause Racism has been inspiring and energizing. And among all of the great titles that he has, the one that I appreciate the most is um, he is my mentor, he's my coach, he's my friend, and he's my little brother. Okay, so Mark will share with us about his blog, No, We Won't Stay in Our Lanes or Stick to Lean. Mark. 
DeAndre, thank you. And I mean, having the chance to to meet you and get to know you and collaborate with you has been um, one of the highlights in an otherwise uh, cruddy year. So um, I'm really glad that we've had this opportunity to to collaborate, and including today. Um, so yeah, I, I wrote a blog post, and, and like DeAndre said, it was titled "I titled it No, We Won't Stay in Our Lanes or Stick to Lean." And I, I'm, I won't read the blog post to you. Um, I encourage you to go, please. You can read all of our blog posts at rootcostracism.com. But I wanted to share some thoughts and maybe a story kind of related to this theme, because I think um, you know none of us can be fully defined by our chosen profession or by our job title. We are all fully formed human beings with thoughts and experiences and opinions. And I think we should be able to use our voices in any way that we choose. So, you know, today's theme of when brothers meet at Gemba, you know, it gets me thinking, well, what do we, what does it mean to go to Gemba? There's, there's a physical act. Um, the Gemba means workplace or the actual place or the real place. Sometimes we're doing this virtually to, to go and see. And, you know, we have to be careful. It's not just the physical act in a workplace, but there are mindsets that I've been taught along the way. And, you know, I think one of those mindsets, and it's a habit, and I'm not perfect about it, is not making assumptions. My mentors uh, from Toyota and, and other lean circles would always remind you of, I think, two important questions. What do you know? And how do you know it? Do you know something? Is it a fact? Or is it a suspicion or an assumption? And we get in trouble when we make assumptions. So now I think inside the workplace or out, we shouldn't assume that we know what other people are experiencing, especially when those experiences are different than ours. We shouldn't assume that we know what others are feeling or how they're feeling. So again, I think back to Fujio Cho from Toyota, who, who says, go and see, ask why, and show respect. So I think of, I can think of examples. Uh, a factory manor, manager, plant manager shouldn't sit in their corner office and be dismissive of safety concerns like a broken machine that come from the shop floor. We should go and see and ask why and show respect. A hospital CEO shouldn't be dismissive of safety concerns that are brought to them like a surgeon who's being abusive in the workplace. And I think of you know a personal story, a time I was out in a restaurant um, maybe two years ago, um, my wife and I were at a restaurant that had really good reviews. We were excited to be there. And when the main course arrived, the meat was really salty. Like it was the saltiest thing I had ever tasted. And so I raised the concern of like, boy, this is disappointing. It's really salty. And the server went back to the kitchen and he brought back word from the chef who said, no, that's how it's supposed to taste. I said, well, that's, that's still too salty. I'd really, I'm sorry, but I'd like to get something else. And a couple of minutes later, the chef came back from the kitchen and said, I'm sorry, I tasted that. That is not how it's supposed to taste. There was clearly an error in the brining process and I apologize and I'll bring you something else. So we have to be really careful. Don't assume that Something is not a problem because we're not tasting the salty meat ourselves. I'm going to stop with that analogy. It's making me hungry. So we shouldn't be dismissive of racism or discrimination just because somebody like me doesn't experience it. We need to listen to the voices of those who face racism or prejudice or discrimination 
in their daily lives. And, and I've made an effort this year to do more to listen, to listen and to learn instead of assuming or being dismissive. And, you know, as I've talked to people this year, one thing that occurred to me that the effects of racism are like a mental tax that I don't have to pay. The distraction or the upset that comes from being mistreated. And I can't and I shouldn't be dismissive of those experiences. And, and, you know, I can choose to stop thinking about issues like this for a day, but none of us can temporarily change the color of our skin for a day if we don't like the way we're being treated. And so, you know, I share some of my personal views, I mean, here and in the blog post, I mean, I'm somewhat talking about lean. And, you know, and I share these thoughts or I've started sharing these, these views because I don't know if people out there would make assumptions about me as a man, as a white man, as a business person with an MBA. Um, but as I've blogged about, I really hope people would not try to shut anybody down by saying things like stay in your lane or stick to lean. If I say something, you don't have to listen. You don't have to agree. I don't expect someone to necessarily change their mind, but please don't tell us to be quiet. If you want to stop attending webinars or if you want to stop reading my blog because we're bringing up this, these issues, that's your choice. But my choice is to speak up and I'll live. If there are any consequences from that, I can live with that. So um, I would encourage, again, anybody who disagrees, you know, don't make assumptions uh, about why or, uh, or who I am. I think those lessons are, you know, as I've tried to apply with others, instead of assuming, go to the Gemba. Go and see, ask why, and show respect. Thank you, Mark. That that is excellent, and and you're exactly right. Don't make assumptions. You know, we we find ourselves getting in situations and you know reaching you know faulty conclusions when we make assumptions. So there is a question for you. Um, isn't an argument for staying in your lane? that you can't have expertise in everything. So stick to what you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I get that. And we hear that when, you know, people, you know, as I blogged about, people get told, stick to sports or shut up and dribble, which is a really even ruder way of putting it. Um, I'm, I'm not writing or sharing from any claimed expertise. I can share my experiences and, and my thoughts and my views and, I, I think that's my right. I've been trying to learn from people I would consider experts. Um, there are many great books out there and webinars and series that, that we can attend. Um, so yeah, I would say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to come from a place of expertise because I certainly, certainly don't have it. And I think that's okay, though. And I think it's okay as well. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing. Okay. Thank you. Next um, is Hugh. And as I indicated when I first introduced Hugh, Hugh and I met at a Kodakon several years ago. And, you know, sometimes you meet people and you just instantly click. And that's how it, how it was with Hugh and I. And ever since, uh, we've been really good friends. And when I sent out the call for participation in this particular blog series, Hugh, I believe, was one of the first people who responded with a resounding yes. And so without further ado, I will turn it over to Hugh and he will share um, some takeaways from his blog, Reflecting on Racism. I am racist. I don't like it. Now what? Hugh? 
Thanks so much, Deandra. Uh, I want to start just by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you. Uh, it's currently called Burnaby, British Columbia, but it's the traditional and unceded territory of the Musqueam and Squamish-speaking uh, peoples, uh, Indigenous peoples, uh, where I have the honor of living and working. Uh, and I guess the place that I start is that I am a person uh, with privilege. I'm white, I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual, I'm male, I'm over 60. Basically, on any kind of line that society draws, I've got privilege, and it's unearned. Uh, I'm from settler stock, grew up in what I saw as a very white Toronto. Um, so my trials have never been about survival or of anything like that. <coughs> and the challenge that that I think I have um, is to become, become aware of the fact that I am racist. Uh, and that was brought home to me in a workshop at Cornell in 1981. Uh, the leader was a black preacher from Atlanta, and he took us through a long process. And at the end, he said, we're all racist, including me. And everybody in that was involved in the workshop was kind of taken aback. How could this guy be saying that? And to help us understand, he offered this thought experiment, and it's in my blog, but I think it's important enough that you can do it right now, and, and maybe it will help. So imagine you're driving along a country road, and you crest a hill, and on the way down, your car stalls, and it comes to rest in a gully, equidistant from the crests on either side, and you need help. No cell service. And at that moment, you notice walking over the two hills from the two sides are two people. You look one direction, the person's black. You look at the other direction, the person is white. And the question is, to whom do you turn for help? If you're honest with yourself, the leader said, you know that you will pick the person with the same skin color as you. It's a decision we make in ignorance because let's face it, we have no idea who's better at fixing cars. All we know is their skin color. And yet it seems wired into us that we go to the people that look like us. And that's the racism. And it's not, comfortable to to recognize it and that's when he made the critical point he said that racism stuff that's normal what's not normal what's repugnant what's unfair what's unjust is to then go about creating social systems that embed that ignorant decision into the world he said, we're not asking, we're, the, the objective is not to pretend that we're colorblind. We can celebrate people's color. What we need to do is not embed the stuff 
in the social systems to judge in ignorance, to make decisions in ignorance. And so if I start from the fact that I'm racist and I know it and I'm not really comfortable about that, what do I do? Because every time I question it, all I need to do is walk amongst people that don't look like me and I get it. I just have to think about the car in the valley. So I'm from Canada and racism in Canada plays out very differently than it does in the U.S. Um, we've spent 153 years as a country, basically, and I'm going to use quotes, putting down the Indians. Uh, we've done it in lots of different ways. Residential schools, the 60s scoop, uh, the Indian Act, uh, the number of Indigenous children that are in the child welfare system now. Fundamentally, for 130 years, we've systematically and deliberately removed kids from their parents, stripping them of their identity. And that is appalling. And it's heart-wrenching. And if that's the current state, what do I do with that? What's my next step? And from our theme, I think that covers it. It's Go see, ask why, show respect. And so what I want to do in what's left of my time is just share with you some of the ways that I've found to go see. Uh, and some of them are real are things that you'll be able to copy. Some of, You'll find your own variations on what that looks like. But let me talk about three broad areas. One is... Where do you go? The picture that you see behind me is taken from Conget Island in Haida Gwaii, where I visited uh, two years ago. Um, the Haida, uh, Haida Gwaii is a set of islands about 100 uh, kilometers, 120 kilometers off the British Columbia coast. Uh, before contact with settlers, they had six to 10,000 people. In that and living in those islands, and in the 30 years after contact, that dropped to 700. Disease, uh, and primarily disease. Um, can you imagine what happens to your community if you take 90% of your community away? What does that do to you? What does that do to the history and the knowledge? And so to go there, to visit that space, to listen to the Haida watchkeepers at uh, Skangwai, which is an abandoned Haida village, um, was, uh, it was heart-wrenching. Um, and then our guide took us into the forest one day to this log or up, you know, into the forest, said, you see the canoe? And we had to look around. 150 years ago, the community had cut down a tree and they had shaped it and hollowed it and they were ready to drag it out down to the sea and the village collapsed and that canoe was abandoned. And 
150 years later, it's moss covered and it's filling in. It'll be another 300 years before that canoe goes into the forest floor. But to look at that canoe and understand what that meant about what we had done to that indigenous community, that nation, it's pretty awful. I've also found that there are lots of really unexpected ways to listen to indigenous voices. Um, lectures, music, um, workshops sponsored by my church, radio programs, plays, documentaries, um, every one of them, when I started going looking for them, they were there waiting for me to hear. And they've all increased my awareness of what that lived experience is. They are the voice of the people living that world because I can't live it. I'm white privileged guy. I'm not going to ever live their experience, but I can listen to their voices. I've also changed my reading diet. Um, I've probably read enough white male authors to last the rest of my life. And now I should listen to people with different voices. And so my, my, my reading list, my want to read list is shifting. And I think that's something that we can all do, regardless of where we live. You know, the public libraries everywhere, you can find those voices and read them. And they tell us so much, fiction, nonfiction, all that. So those are some of the ways that I think those of us who live on the privileged side of the divide, on the oppressor side of the divide, those are some of the things that we can do to go and listen to the voice of the lived experience, to go to Gemba. If I had one suggestion for everyone, and it doesn't matter where you live or who you are, I think this is a fabulous book. Uh, Thomas King is a Cherokee, a self-identified Cherokee, lives in, has lived in Canada for 30 or 40 years, wrote a book called The Inconvenient Indian, A Curious Account of Native Peoples in North America. And Tom King is an equal opportunity writer. He'll poke at everybody. Um, and I think... It's just, it's a wonderful starting place for folks. So this is all eye-opening work that we who are white, who are privileged, need to do. And if we do this, I think the Atlanta preacher would point out that we'll still all be racist, but our eyes will be open and we'll recognize more easily where our social structures embed the ignorance of racism. And once we've seen those, then we can start the work of improvement.
Thank you so much, Hugh. And thank you for those deep reflections. And thank you for, you know, taking us to to your Gimba and and giving us some examples of things that we can reflect on. Um, There was one question um, that came through was, you know, what are some things that we can do to listen to the oppressed? And I think you answered that already uh, in talking about, you know, listening to lectures know, watching movies, going to workshops, plays, and, you know, listening to documentaries. So thank you so much for that, Hugh. Really appreciate it. Okay. Next, uh, we will have Chris Chapman. And uh, he, Chris and I uh, met, um, we were introduced by Mark Graven. And so um, I'm looking forward to you sharing about your reflections and takeaways from what you need to know before going to Gimba. Chris? Thank you, uh, Deandra. Um, I've heard a couple of things uh, thus far that um, I think are uh, key points to uh, keep in mind. Uh, like you, uh, my reading diet has has changed as well. So um, I've always been a uh, an avid reader of you know everything lean, and uh, you know lately I've been reading more about race and racism. And so I've uh, started to write about that. So I was uh, very pleased to um, take part in hashtag root cause racism when you reached out to me, Deandra. And I think um, the, the main point I was trying to make in uh, my article um, touches on some points that, you know, Mark mentioned about, you know, it's a mindset. And that uh, before we go to the Gimba, which um, is a practice that, you know, lean thinkers often do um, to really get a sense of what's really going on. You know, we define it as where, you know, the value added uh, creation and the work, the real work is taking place. And so um, what I've found, and this is something I've, I've noticed um Recently, and just being out in in the Gimba doing work and working with clients, um, last year I was I was working with uh, a group of uh, lean consultants, no doubt, <laughs> um, and uh, we were going to the Gimba, and this particular uh, team had um, you know created A threes, and I. Uh, joined the team a little bit uh, later where they had already populated their A3s. They had challenge statements fully defined. They had identified current and uh, future state metrics and uh, things were looking really good. And I thought, wow, okay. Um, But as we started to have deeper conversation about it, what I realized was that they had failed to clearly define who the customer was. And in doing so, um, this particular team, they were looking at uh, inpatient and the emergency room department. So they had process mapped out the process, had identified all sorts of, you know, waste and good opportunities for improvement. Um, But once I I started to uh, ask questions around, well, wait a minute, who's the customer again? And the way they were approaching it, they were going to address every single waste that they had uncovered. And uh, and it wasn't very clear who the customer was. They knew which metrics they wanted to improve upon, uh, one of which was readmission rates. 
And um, but as we started to have more conversation about the customer, we found that, uh, hey, to really drive that metric, we needed to focus on patients with um, chronic uh, disease. Uh, we needed to focus more on diabetic patients. And so that became the customer. And it was that realization that, oh, that's the customer we're talking about. Um, so we want to rather than, and you're still going to do time observations of, you know, staff and folks doing, um, you know, their work. But uh, we shifted our attention to look at the customer and to see how the customer is flowing through uh, that value stream. And so with that clear understanding of the customer, you know, we, we uh, uh, redid our, our challenge statement. Uh, we included some metrics that weren't uh, included before. And so um, just having that clear idea of who the customer is, is, is key before you go to the Gimba and before you start applying, um, you know, process improvement tools. And uh, in this season of kind of reimagining, you know, how uh, law enforcement, you know, shows up to service as customers. And I don't know that uh, we always think about it in that way, that we are customers. And, you know, in Lean, we often talk about, you know, uh, internal and external customers. And that, you know, as leaders, we have to serve both our internal customers to actually serve the external customer. And the external customer obviously is the one, you know, paying for, you know, our services and our products and the internal customers are, you know, our colleagues, our coworkers. And so um, it really does change our mindset. And uh, if you've been approaching process improvement or, uh, any work that you might do from the Gimba, from more of a self-centered uh, position, uh, asking that fundamental question about who is your customer shifts that mindset to, hey, it's not solely about me, but it's about the folks that I serve. And so that opens you up to being more empathetic and uh, really thinking about how do I best serve my customer. And so I would even uh, challenge, you know, some of the folks because I can relate to, you know, some of what Mark is experiencing, because if I as I have started to use my voice and my skill set to address uh, systemic racism. I've heard, you know, some feedback, uh, very small, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, I've received overwhelming support, but there's always one or two, you know, <laughs> in the mix that will, uh, you know, uh, claim that, uh, Hey, you're getting outside of your lane, uh, and talking about systemic racism. And I, I push back very strongly on that. Um, uh, you're very much inside your lane as a lean thinker and leader because we're in the business of removing barriers to serving customers. And if you understand that, you know that you've got customers internally and externally. And so historically, we've focused on things like transportation, processing, you know, overproduction, those kinds of things. Uh, safety uh, issues or defects, 
those are all obstacles or barriers to customers serving customers, you know? Um, and so systemic racism, from my point of view, um, uh, it's an insidious form of waste that, you know, impedes our ability to, to provide value, create value and serve our customers. And so um, while it's different than what we used to do, um, and I would say we're in a different world, the Gimba has changed since May 25th, right? New world. And so we can't continue to think in the same way. And so um, this focus on systemic racism in our value streams and in our, our organizations um, it, to me, it simply represents an expansion of kind of lean thinking. Okay. And so, um, as we better inform ourselves, you know, as, uh, was mentioned, I'm reading more, I'm learning more. We're having conversations like we're having now. Um, and we're not the only ones, people all around the world, you know, having these, these conversations which are uh, very different, can be a bit awkward and uncomfortable. But um, I can, and speaking for myself, I can at least say that I'm becoming more comfortable, you know, having these sorts of conversations. Um, but my, my focus from a lean perspective is, um, is really the same, perhaps with a greater sense of urgency about waste reduction and elimination um, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, as a lean leader, you know, my primary goal is to help organizations remove waste from their value streams so that they can better serve the customer. Um, and so uh, systemic uh, racism uh, just hit my radar as of uh, May 25th. And uh, I'm going to go after it with all the uh, bigger uh, and know-how that I know how to do. And so um, I'm encouraged by the support that, that uh, I've received thus far. And um, I think that's what we're all being called to do. And uh, just as human beings, I don't know how you witness what occurred with George Floyd on May 25th um, and not speak out and do something. And so the something that I can do as a lean leader is uh, apply lean thinking and principles to help uh, reduce and uh, eliminate uh, systemic racism um, from organizations and value streams. And, um, and I'm happy to do that. Obviously I'm, I'm a black male. I have, you know, two sons, um, and so this, uh, I really see it as an imperative, you know, um, that's incumbent upon all of us to use uh, our skills, our know-how to inform ourselves, educate ourselves to, to, um, to address this. And so um, that's, that's really what I was, I was trying to communicate in my article. Uh, and I'll continue writing more, as you mentioned, and certainly plan to, um, as you stated, um, use uh, my know-how. Uh, I'm partnering with my my uh, my wife, uh, Dr. Valeria Sinclair Chapman, who is an expert in diversity, and so that's what I can do. 
you know, and uh, I think as uh, listeners, um, you know, ask the very same question, hey, what can I do? Uh, I think we all can take an inventory of uh, the skill sets and value that we already possess and think about how we can use that to um, make the Gimba a better place for uh, all its stakeholders. And so um, we all have something to contribute. We all have value. And so I would say start there and, uh, and we can, I think it was you, DeAndre, that said uh, this, this is a heavy lift <laughs> and it is. And so as we all contribute and add value, um, it's a less, a little less uh, <laughs> of a burden on, on those of us uh, uh, in the arena doing this important work. Thank you so much, Chris. And, you know, something that I um, that came across clearly in your blog is that, you know, this is important work. And uh, one of the questions that we received, you know, why are lean thinkers talking about racism? And I believe you, you just answered that, you know, with the tools that we all have, um, using those tools for good. And, um, you know, just like we said, dismantling structural racism, that, that's a heavy lift. And so it will take all hands on deck using the tools and skills that we have and joining and linking arms. And that's why it's when brothers meet, we're coming together with our tools and resources to do our part. And whether you're um, new to the lean journey or you've been on this path for an extended period of time, taking those talents you have to help to address this issue, that's the message we're wanting to share today. So thank you for that, Chris. Up next is Eric. Um, I met Eric as a result of the first blog series. Um, he was highly engaged with the blogs, um, commented and gave some incredible feedback on every single article. Um, I reached out to him and connected to him on LinkedIn, was very impressed with the work he's doing. And so it was just only logical that an invitation would be extended to him to participate in the series. And I'm very thankful that you said yes. And one of the things that as I was reading your article, I'm currently taking a class on racial um, equality in the law. And I thought, is Eric in class with me? And I just didn't see him. So um, I am looking forward to you sharing your takeaways about the myth of hard work. Yeah, thank you, DeAndre, and thank you, thank you, everybody else for your contributions as well. I'm just re reflecting on what's already been shared, and, and and Chris just thinking about the voice of the customer, and Hugh recognizing, you know, I I also share aspects of being a racist as well, even as an Asian American or a Taiwanese American. Uh, mark of, of staying in our in our lane, or what's it, what's it mean to stay in our lane? And I just really appreciate um, everyone who's on this webinar, the speakers on this webinar, and DeAndre for giving space to my own voice as a voice that's been oppressed in different ways, right? So really thank you for creating the space because it's small steps like that that allow these things to come to fruition, right? And some of that's even related to the aspect of the a model minority as an Asian American, um, we're enculturated with, it's not okay to raise our voice, right? And so uh, what I wrote my blog post about is really about something that is very intimate and very familiar with anybody who practices in the lean or improvement world. It's that structure drives behavior. We all know that, right? Um, I actually, 20 years ago, before I got into the lean world, I was studying sociology, psychology, anthropology. Uh, I focused on cross-cultural relations and looked at um, um, 
all these different forms of isms. And I actually believe there's more of a, a socioeconomic thing than it was a racial thing. And that was actually how I kind of operated for, for 10 years, trying to undo oppression through the lens of, of classism as well. Um, but I worked really hard. I had some great mentors. I see some of my mentors on this call, a couple from Shingajitsu and from Seattle Children's. I see a lot of people on this webinar who have influenced me. So thanks for coming here through that lens. Um, so I worked really hard and I uh, built a great life for myself um, in Seattle. And um, I actually worked in affordable housing also at the time. And as I was in the process of house shopping in a crazy Seattle all cash market offer, um, and you know, if you're like, you can imagine some of us on the, the data side of lean, I have a giant spreadsheet with all the homes we are looking at, right? And I have a hundred list of hundreds of homes with their pictures, a decision matrix that's helping me evaluate which, which home is gonna be the good one for us. And we finally get to one after you know, being obsessive about uh, the criteria or customer specifications for that, um, that we find one that works for us. And we put down an offer and we're reviewing the deed. And in the deed, it says, if basically, I'm gonna paraphrase it, it says, if you're Asian, you can't live here nor own this home. That just, that made me so angry. I, just, I felt so floored. You can hear it in my voice. I, my parents brought me up with a real hard ethic of hard work and they built their entire, they came to the States literally with two suitcases and a hundred bucks. That's all they brought. They went to school, they worked so hard. I actually didn't even know who my dad was. I mistaked my cousin for my dad because I never saw him because he worked so hard. I never played catch with my dad because he worked so hard. And they built their wealth through home ownership because that's a part of what the American dream is. And if they had come to the country literally not more than 10 years earlier, they would not have been able to get into home ownership. And the life that they created for me and for my brother and my sister would not have been possible life that I'm creating for my daughter would not be possible, right? And so that's just one element that's called redlining. That's just one element of structural racism that we're talking about here that impacts our entire country, right? And that's just, there are so many more. If you think about the structural aspects associated with education, if you think about our healthcare system, um, you know, here what we've been to acknowledge, a lot of um, hospital systems have been to acknowledge that racism is a public health crisis. You look at the outcome measures associated with it, you, you can't argue with the data and the science behind it. But I like to imagine what's next. This, this pain is, is real, but anybody who knows me knows that I'm always thinking towards the future, right? And I imagine what would it look like to live in a society where these, these barriers didn't exist? And not only do they not exist, to quote um, Ibram Kendi, it's you got to be more than not being racist. You got to be anti-racist. So what would it look like if we had created structures that allowed people to actually thrive and succeed and be um, live into their whole purpose and their whole being, right? And I actually think that's a really strong connection of what we do in the lean world um, when we do it um, in a way that's really respectful of people. And that's actually how, what brought me into the lean world through that lens. But what I want to do is, 
because I have a really bad habit, you can probably tell I, I, I talk really big and I have lots of big ideas, big thoughts, and I often struggle to kind of shrink it down. Uh, what does that mean? What does oh, an awesome world uh, where we're all living in dark purpose actually mean? And, you know, how can we shrink that down to small things? So I actually want to try, try a quick small activity for everyone who's listening. And I just want you to think for a moment. Think about um, somebody who's been in your life who's who's been a mentor to you, a coach to you, somebody who you wouldn't be where you are right now without their support. Okay, I want you to picture that person in your mind. And I want you to think about how that person loves you into being to where you are right now. And as you think about those small behaviors, um, I see that the chat's open. I might pull a, a quick one on, on DeAndre here and just encourage everyone to slip that to all panelists and attendees and say, I want you to think about what's one small behavior that that person did for you that helped you to feel loved and supported. So take, take a second, take five seconds to think about what it is, what their small behavior that helped you to be where you are right now. And then I'll ask everyone to throw that in chat. And Eric, I'm, I'm going to just jump in because people can only, the attendees can only chat to the panelists. So I suggest you might want to read off okay. the ones that you think are good to share. Sorry. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to read off a couple that I hear. I see encouraging me to believe in myself. They told me that my voice matters. Listened deeply. Listened very intently. Yeah. And now that I painted a, a rosy picture um, as I shift towards wrapping up and thinking about what's a, a small step associated with this. I want you to think about those small behaviors. They have the, we can do those, we can engage in those. And I want you to also pay attention to that a lot of times the structures that allow those behaviors to happen don't exist for people of color and people who live in oppressed groups. If you think about just the small behaviors and one that you all can identify with, if you've ever had a person who, you know, they just give you a nasty look and it takes two seconds, right? It doesn't take very much time at all. And you don't know who they are, but all of a sudden your day is ruined. You're like, what was that person doing? Why'd they give me that look? Why do I feel judged within that space, right? And then I want you to imagine as a person of color, what it feels like to experience that look multiple times per day and the oppression that that causes on people when we experience those microaggressions through that lens. Um, Chris started to mention a little bit about even the government work, and I know that there's a few government people on the call. This pained me the most when I was in the government space, I actually used to work for the police. Um, and one of the facets that pained me the most for police is when people would, citizens or um, folks would call, um, complaining basically about uh, people of color in their neighborhoods that they felt really uncomfortable with. The person wasn't doing anything suspicious. They just didn't quote unquote belong, right? But because um, uh, we were less uh, woke as a society at the time, that police, because of liability, felt they had to respond, right? And they knew they're like, oh, there's probably nothing going on. This is a person who's, you know, this person is like overblowing things and, and may not be worried about things, but they still have to drive by and they're gonna look at that person. And still that person's gonna notice there's this officer driving by and they're, and they're looking at me and, and looking at me with a scrutinizing eye. And whether or not that officer has any intent, the damage has already been done, 
right? And it's those teeny tiny behaviors that can really change the way we look in society. So I'm really just grateful for the opportunity to, to talk about talk with y'all and think about what small changes can make a really big difference with such a structural problem like racism. Thank you so much, Eric. And, you know, thank you for sharing your personal stories, because it's one thing to read about something in a history book or read something in an article, but it's another thing to actually know a fellow human being who has experienced um, those type of microaggressions or, or ways of, um, or, you know, or oppression in some um, some form. So thank you very much for being so open and for the exercise because, you know, of, of reflection. That's, that's what we do in Lean. We need to take the time to reflect on things that we've learned and things that we've experienced to see how it is we can make improvements. So thank you so much, Eric. Um, speaking of, you know, personal stories, next I'd like to introduce Sam Morgan, Mr. 92nd Purpose, and um, his blog um, was, it was very heartfelt. And um, so I don't want to take up any more time. So Sam, if you would share uh, the takeaways from your blog, The Face of the Future. Well, thanks, Deandra. And to all the gentlemen here, I am honestly, I'm just so honored to be a part of this um, uh, whole series, all these men providing different perspectives. That was one thing that just kind of floored me as I was reading everything. I was like, man, are we going to repeat? And I'm like, no, we aren't. And I was just so, I was so grateful as I read every one of these men's blogs. It was all also different, but all we're all focused on working on the same, same problem. When, it, when we're talking about root cause races and we know there's not one root cause, but having these different perspectives can help us look at those and we can each take uh, what's, uh, what's passionate, what we're passionate about and what we can work on and look at each one of those. So I'm so thankful for being a part of this and having these different perspectives and sharing this space. Um, a couple months ago, um, I kind of got really engaged um, with this, of course, with the first series. And then when Mark had uh, Christopher on um, his, um, his blog, um, his podcast, and uh, Christopher was on with his wife, and um, many of you may or may not know, but my wife is also in the DE&I work. She does restorative justice, and she's just amazing. And um, so as I was thinking about what Chris and his wife did and um, what my wife and I could possibly do, and then just thinking, okay, how can we marry these two things, continuous improvement and the work to end structural racism? And then Deandra came out with, this is, we're going to do this next. And I was like, dang, this is perfect timing. So I'm just, this is um, a beautiful synergy of, of two things that I'm passionate about. And um, you may wonder, okay, well, how does that apply to, to, you know, my, my son? Well, um, as I think about um, the corporate place that I work in, and I, I love my place of work at the standard um, and, and they've started on the lean journey about four or five years ago. But of course, just like we know in any workplace, um, it's not perfect, right? There's always opportunities for um, ways for us to get better. And there was a number of um, incidents where I saw how people showed up, whether when people of color were in a certain space. And, you know, when I, I look at my company, and this is well known, we've only 5% of our um, workforce is African-American. So um, at a company has been around for 108 years. Um, it's not a surprise in the Northwest. Um, so when a person of color shows up, people might might assume or think things about that the way and react in certain ways. So as I was seeing the way my coworkers were showing up, I um I thought, well, how would this be 
if my son Judah were to be here in 15 years? How would he be treated? How would, how would he be accepted? Um, and as if you read, I encourage you to read it uh, about the son, my son Judah. He's just a beautiful young man. He's, on, um, he's autistic. Um, of color won't get those opportunities, may not get those opportunities that they should get because of the way that they're seen. And so my hope with writing this was to get the, the face of the future state like Deandra talked about. I think it's easy for us to look at the statistics. We can see the videos on CNN or Fox or wherever you want, and you just see a glob of people and you don't have any way to relate to that. It just looks like these people who are doing harm or, or speaking ill or whatever it might be. But when you can get the, the face, someone that you can really attach and see, this is a real human being. This is a real person who, with, with flesh and skin and bones and a heart. And um, hope is that, um, you know, as I walked into the different places where I would ask leaders of, of certain areas, um, hey, there's, there's this gap I'm seeing here. Help me understand, like, help me understand why we have this population or a country, but only this here at our company. If we have this, so many in, in uh, this, this population demographic, um, why is this department have like zero people of color, zero women? Help me understand, right? So that's where I wanted to bring in the continuous improvement piece um, because um, then it brings, it's not just like, it's not just about the heart. Although I think that's important. It's about, we need to see that gap. All right. We need to see the gap. If there's a, a 13% population and a 5% population, there's a gap there. We have, uh, we have something to cover and we have, we have some root cause that we need to, to, to do a root cause analysis that we need to do. So um, as I was seeing these issues um, at my, at my work, I brought these, this to, you know, different leaders and this is something that I would encourage any of you all to do if you're in the corporate environment. Um, it may seem like, depending on how big your corporation is, that's, and how can we change that? What can we do? And really, for me, um, anytime there is a meeting, um, I'm just going to be curious. I'm going to be brave, and I'm going to ask a, a question. It doesn't have to be anything like deep or anything. You can just, for me, it's like, okay, here's the, here's the gap. You know, what, what are we doing to what kind of actionable steps? Because it's easy for a lot of, um, I know, like vice presidents and everything to just give <laughs> the corporate answer. But what are actionable steps that the company is taking to really make this a diverse, equitable and inclusive workplace? And um, so that's what I would encourage um, all the folks out there to do. And think of folks, uh, kids like my son, Judah, or your kids. Um, you want them to be given every opportunity to be successful. And so how can we change that story for kids like my son, Judah? And my wife and I are going to do everything we can, but there are some people who don't have advocates. They don't have people who are standing up for them and they need people like us to be the voice to do that right now. So I just encourage you um, to do that. Um, and again, I'm so thankful to be a part. And thank you once again, DeAndre and Mark, for this opportunity.
I was trying to come off mute. Thank you so much, Sam. And again, thank you for sharing, you know, your personal experiences. Um, and even, you know, in your blog, there were several pictures. And I thought, talk about visual management, talking about those visual indicators to help bring a message through. Um, so thank you again for writing such an um, inspirational and heartfelt blog that speaks to why this work is so important. So next, last but certainly not least, Jeff Welch. Great friend, we've known each other for 30 plus years. And when we talk about going to Gimba uh, for this particular opera, uh, situation, it's getting out to vote. And in Jeff's blog, he gave us all three steps to becoming an informed and savvy voter. So Jeff, please share the takeaways you want the group to have from your blog. Absolutely. Thank you so much, DeAndra, for allowing me to be a part of this. I have been on this journey with DeAndra with hashtag root cause racism since the beginning, but mostly behind the scenes, helping with some writing and some editing work. And when she asked me to take a part in this particular program, writing a blog and then serving as this panelist, uh, I'm, I'm really humbled and I'm, I'm honored to do that. Uh, I work in the corporate and organizational training space. So I'm relatively new to lean, but the more I learn about it, the more I realize that a lot of the methodologies that we use in corporate and organizational training are very similar and even parallel some of the, a lot of the methodologies that are used in Lean. So it's a really learning and a growing and a discovery process for me, and I'm really, really enjoying it. So I'll start with that word Gimba. When um, DeAndra shared that with me, the first thing I'm thinking is, well, what is it? Having some roots on my father's side from Louisiana, I'm thinking, well, is it a Creole-Cajun dish that I'm not familiar with? What is this thing called gimba? So she explained it to me, and then she said part of this, or at least there's, a, I, I want at least a segment in the blog to make gimba the action of voting. And uh, she asked me to sort of take on that aspect of it. So I shared a story in the blog about uh, my first time voting. I've always been relatively interested in politics. As a senior in high school, we were required to take a civics class. I'll never forget, I had an instructor by the name of Tom Kurz, and he shared with us voting, how an, uh, uh, something becomes a bill, uh, the three equal branches of the government, and it piqued my interest. But when it got to actually doing the work, which was voting, I did it because I knew I had to, but I never really knew why. The first time I voted was in the election between um, Bush and Clinton back in uh, 1992, I believe it was. And my mother drove me to the polls. And as we, because she voted that day too. And as we walked up to the entrance of the, uh, the polling location, she said, very vividly, I remember, be sure to vote Democrat. Okay, so I voted Democrat. And I really voted like that pretty much all of my entire life, never really knowing why I voted Democrat, other, other than the fact that my mother told me to do that. Uh, growing up as a Southerner, we were always, or at least I was always taught that there are two things you never talk about in mixed company, and that's politics and religion. And ironically enough, those are two things for me in my life I did sort of blindly for a big chunk of my life. Why did I go to a Baptist church? Well, maybe it was because my family four generations ago founded that church, but outside of that, I didn't really know why. Why did I vote Democrat? Well, because again, mom told me on the way to the uh, election booth to vote Democrat. So it, it, 
it, it, I had to come into my own and my own being, if you will, of doing research on candidates. And that happened for me in about 2008 when my interest was piqued with a senator from Illinois who had a very quirky name of Barack Hussein Obama. And uh, I wanted to take more of a part. So I made it my mission to find out as much as I could about this particular candidate. And not only should we be finding out about candidates who run for elections on the national level, like our presidential candidates, but it is paramount and it's important that we research and find out the information of our local candidates, because in a lot of ways, people who make decisions at that local level they make decisions that impact our lives uh, probably the most on a daily basis. One group in particular, and I mentioned this in our blog, in my blog, that really does need to be investigated and researched before you make a decision, uh, a voting decision, are people who are running on the levels of judges and prosecutors. These are the only people with the bang of a gavel or the signature of a pen who have the power to put someone into modern day bondage. So it's important that we know who these people are, that we know their ideology, what they stand for. And as I segue into the whole thing about root cause racism, voting is indeed one of the ways, because there are many ways, as you've heard from our panelists, in which we can put, put action into play to solve or bring about a solution to this particular problem. But voting is one of them. So learn who your candidates are, both at the national level and the local level, so you can begin to vote for candidates who uh, are aligned with your interest. If you are truly an ally, let's vote against people who uh, push and vote and support racist ideology. In this day and, age, day and age, most mainstream candidates won't just come out and say, hey, I'm a racist. Now, they'll send a lot of dog whistles, uh, but mainstream candidates are not going to say that. But they could have some racist thinking, and that typically shows up in measures and legislation that they support. So we have to be very, very uh, aware of that and knowledgeable of that. So if you've already voted, congratulations, and I hope that you made the best decision having thought that through and researched that. But if there's anybody out there who has not voted, before you vote, either via early voting or on November the 3rd, research your candidates just to make sure that you are indeed voting for the right people who support your interest. And again, if you consider yourself an ally, let's vote for people who support an anti-racist movement and agenda. And let's vote against people to get those out of office who have that sort of ideology. So if those are the key takeaways from my blog and what I'm bringing to you today via this webinar is think about it, research it, look at voting as one of the most important acts that you can do as a citizen of this democratic society. It is an honor and a privilege to vote. Some people got it. Um, uh, it was awarded to them the right to vote. Others had to earn that right to vote. So let's honor it by researching our candidates and making the best decision on who we vote for. And in that, and when we do that, we will not suffer from voters' remorse later on down the line. So again, DeAndre, thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this particular process. And I hope that what I've written and what I've said today does indeed resonate with someone.
Well, Jeff, thank you for saying yes. And, um, you know, we're not done with you quite yet. We do have one question. And I think uh, this question is specifically important because of the timing and what will be taking place later this evening. The question is, is it helpful to watch a debate as a way to research a candidate? That is very timely. As we all know, uh, if you've been watching TV or listening to talk radio or any other uh, media outlet, you know that there is the final presidential debate tonight here in the States between um, Donald J. Trump, the uh, current president, and Joe Biden, who is the Democratic nominee. Now, if you've already voted, clearly you have made your decision and you've exercised that via your vote. But there could be some people out there who are still undecided or who have not made a decision. So watching a presidential debate, uh, I don't think it can hurt, particularly for those people who are undecided. As a matter of fact, I'm a big history buff. And I, I take you back to history. The very first televised debate was in the year of 1960 between um, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. And a lot of historians do say that that debate performance that uh, John F. Kennedy had was instrumental and pivotal in his eventual election. So you can definitely research candidates via other means, doing an online search, going to their particular websites. Uh, But with this presidential election and any other debates that may come up outside of just the presidential, listen, listen to what they say. Look at their nonverbals and their body language when they're saying it. You could pick up some detail and some information that does help you make that informed and satisfying voter decision. Thank you so much, Jeff. Pleasure. And thank you to all of our panelists for for your sharing those important takeaways. Mark, I'll I'll turn it over to you for announcements. Yes. Thank you um, to all of our panelists again for um, everything we share that you've shared Today, I will get the announcements up and running right now. Here we go. So just a couple of quick announcements. So we have upcoming webinars. Um, Kinex's customers uh, are invited to attend the next training team office hours with Adam Darnell and Matt Banna on October 29th. Um, You can also, uh, the registration is not yet open for the next presentation style webinars that are open to all. Uh, November is still being sorted out. So if you go to kinexus.com slash webinars, you can sign up to be notified by email when we have other content about continuous improvement. Uh, in December, Albanesa Yamaya will be presenting. She's a uh, Lean and Six Sigma professional in the Dominican Republic. And this is going to be our first Spanish language webinar. This was a suggestion from one of our customers. And so Albanesa is going to be presenting in Spanish, but she's also going to be doing a recorded session in English for those of us um, who, like myself, who um, who don't speak Spanish. So we have that um, that opportunity um, for for um, for that experiment, and we're really excited about that. And then in January, uh, Stephanie Hill um, is going to be doing um, a webinar. And uh, Stephanie has been part of our Kinexus um, community for many years. So we're really excited to have uh, their voices. And um, 2021 is going to bring many other webinars, including Deandra has agreed. I'm not putting her on the spot. She has already agreed that she will do a presentation um, on uh, 
Kata probably next year in 2021. Um, also invite you to go check out our continuous improvement webinar on demand library. Um, this is all free, all of the webinars that we've put out there, including last Tuesday's panel, including the August panel on root cause racism and today's session that will all be in that library. We encourage you uh, to explore that. Our blog at blog.kinexus.com. And our podcast, the audio of today's panel, like the other webinars, also ends up in our podcast feed. So uh, if you want to revisit this or share it with others who would rather listen while they're driving, um, instead of watching the recording on YouTube, um, you can find the Kinexus Continuous Improvement Podcast anywhere you find podcasts. So those are the announcements. Deandra, back to you. All right, Mark, thank you for those announcements. Uh, we do have time for at least one question before we wrap up and I'll share the calls to action and then we'll close out. Um, so one of the questions um, that's being asked by um, the attendees, what is your, the panelist action when you see or discover racism at the Gemba? So when you observe some type of racist act um, what is it that you do? Who would like to respond to that question? Okay, Sam. Yeah, I actually, I can speak to that. I had a, a couple experiences around this. And one of the things that I remember from a couple of years ago on, um, it was a training I did. Um, and this is before I would say I really got to the woke state that I'm at right now. But it was still something that's always resonated with me, and that was um, the idea of just saying something. And there was a time when I was early, I had worked an early shift with um, a coworker, and um, we were having a conversation. It was uh, like 5.30 in the morning, so nobody else was in the office. And he had made a comment about um, something like those Arabs or something like that. And um, I, I, that 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 training had come, come to me in my mind. And I was like, I really didn't want to say something because he was the kind of um, guy, you know, outside, like outside of probably um, put on like a kind, you know, maybe um, Christian face, so to speak. Um, and he, when, when I, when I decided to say something, he reacted and was like, well, my daughter's married to someone from Latin America and this, that, and the other trying to basically pass over the fact. And I said, would do, were you aware that this might be offensive to somebody like this, not accusing or anything like that. So again, for me, if I face something to answer the question, if I face something, it's being curious. I've had a couple of these instances at work and the approach I take is being curious, not, not pointing fingers because you don't know what the intention is but you want to make sure that they're aware that there might be an impact to other people. So that's what I would say to the person who asked that question is be curious and, and be brave too. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to take you stepping over the edge to ask that question. Um, but if you do it with the right heart and you're asking with that curiosity, then um, that's, that's the right path to go. Thank you so much, Sam. Mark, do you have something as well to, yeah, um, I, have, I have a story and it's more about, um, a failure on my part, um, and maybe this is you know necessary. The first time we run across a scenario, um, we learn from it, and I, and I think today I would be better equipped in the moment. But um, in my last manufacturing job, going back um, a little more than fifteen years ago, mm -hmm. we had a team huddle 
with the operators, the production supervisor, myself as an engineer and another engineer. And there had been a production problem um, somehow traced back to the one, the other engineer was saying the standard work hadn't been followed and there was some blaming and some discussion back and forth. And then he blurted out as, as an older white male engineer, he said, well, this wouldn't be a problem if the operators could just read, which is rude, but our operators included, um, you know, a couple people of, um, uh, there was a Latina woman. There were a couple of immigrants of Asian descent on the team. It was a diverse team. And in the moment, I was just stunned because I didn't expect anything like that to be said. And I froze and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, later I pulled the and on cord, if you will, by bringing it up with him and the area director. And he was defensive. And I didn't mean it like that. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know. Maybe I was assuming or maybe. He doesn't know what was behind what he was saying. But, you know, I was embarrassed that I didn't speak up in the moment. And from what I've heard of stories from others, you know, the one strategy is simply to ask, can you explain what you mean by that? When he had said, if only the operators could read. What will tell, what do you mean by that? And, you know, um, maybe there are more aggressive ways to deal with it of saying, wait, no, that's wrong. Um, you know, but I, you know, I, that, that wasn't a moment where, you know, I'm not really proud of the way I reacted. And I, I wish I'd done more to stand up in the moment and, um, you know, try to address it right on the spot instead of a little bit later in the day. You know, Mark, you know, something to keep in mind and, and all the panelists, you know, and I picked up on these, not only from the blogs, but from conversations we've had. That's the other motivation of why we're doing this when brothers meet. It's from some of the behind the scenes conversations. And, you know, thankfully, we always have an opportunity. We learn from whatever our experiences are and from what we learn that inspires us the next time when we're faced with those opportunities to speak up or say something or do something. And it's two sides to it. Um, it's one for the side of the ally where it's important to speak up and ask for that clarity. And then also it's an opportunity from the side of those of us who experience microaggressions. Um, I experience them on a daily basis. I, you know, have had a situation within the last uh, week and and I had to determine you know well did that person really mean what they said or how it is that they did and and that's why going to Gemba is so important we can't just jump to conclusions or place labels on people we have to ask for that clarity and then when we do get that clarity continue as best as you can to continue have that dialogue and gain understanding and look for ways to be educated and look for ways to educate others. And, you know, that's the one small thing we all can do is we just need to talk and listen to one another and try to gain that understanding and make things better. So, you know, Mark and Sam both, thank you for answering that question and sharing, you know, your own personal experiences to bring it to life. So, and we have 11 minutes left. Oh my goodness, time has flown by. Um, you know, one of the things that we wanted to share the this team, we, we did everything together and we collectively identified um, some calls to action. And what I will do is I will place the, the main call to action in the chat. I'll also read it. Um, but it, it begins with, you know, going to Gimba. And that is, you know, asking what is your organization doing to build more equity and inclusion, connect with the leaders, driving the work, and support them, okay? What are your clients doing to undo 
institutional racism? Go ask. What are you doing to create more equity? And what could you do better? There's always room for improvement. Um, the second call to action, use your voice. Don't be silent. Reach out, connect, write, challenge yourself, engage in at least one conversation. And then, of course, go vote, please and thanks. Okay. And then if you're looking for a resource, um, the scaffolded anti-racist resources, uh, the link is in the chat. And so you can access that um, and then, or you can, for those who may be listening on the recorded session, um, you can Google scaffolded anti-racist resources. Okay. So, you know, in my closing comments, before I turn it back over to Mark, first of all, I want to thank Kinexus for being so generous and sharing this platform and um, for, for supporting us not only in hosting the webinar, but um, I've received feedback from the executive leadership team of, from Kinexus over the course of time that they're here to support this work. Um, so they're, it's not just lip service. And they demonstrated and, and the diversity that they're bringing to their webinars and the way in which they support root cause racism. So thank you, Kinexus. Um, secondly, to my brothers on this panel, I just thank you so much for the work that you're doing in your communities, the work that you're doing in your spaces to make this world a better place. And I just want to thank you for how you support me, how you take my phone calls and my texts and you let me bounce ideas off of one another because this is not, this work that we need to do, not one person can do it, not two or three people. It takes a team. And on days when I am weak, you guys help me be strong. And you not only do that for me, but you do that for everyone in your circles. And so when I say that you're my brother, I don't mean that loosely. You guys are like family to me. Um, and, you know, so for those who are participating on this live webinar, or if you're tuning in via the recording, we thank you for your engagement. We thank you for your great questions. We thank you for the ways that you're engaging with us and you're sharing our blogs on social media. Um, I'm starting to receive um, um, connection requests through the Root Cause Racism website where you want to stay informed and where you want to get involved and, and helping us getting into some good trouble and getting and, and doing this work. So thank you to those out there, not only in Zoom land, uh, but those on YouTube land and those who are listening via podcast that you're joining in on this great effort with us. And we appreciate you. So, you know, if there's one takeaway that I would like everyone to, to gather and to understand, you know, the main theme of the work we've been doing this week is it's important to Seek to understand, see something, say something, and do something. And that thing you do does not have to be some huge, big, monumental thing. You can start with reading a book. You can start with having a conversation. Uh, but just find that one small thing to do. Listen to the voices of the oppressed. Seek to understand. And go to Gemba. Go see, listen, and learn from the voices of the oppressed. Ask why, consider how your own experience has contributed to racism, and then show respect. Uh, to quote Karen Ross, one of the most kindest things we can do is to vote for kindness and to get out and vote. Please and thanks. Mark Graven, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Well, thanks, Deandra. And you know, I do want to also thank the Kinexus leadership team when I brought up the idea of doing the first webinar in August and doing the two this week, there was zero hesitation 
in their response of, yes, this is important. We are happy um, to provide this platform. And um, you mentioned Karen Ross. I'm wearing her button. This is from uh, her Love and Kindness Project Foundation. So I want to thank her for that. She was a great part of Tuesday's webinar. Um, but I'm, I'm going to pull the end on cord. I mean, I think we have about six minutes left. So maybe we can do some real kind of laser focused um, CTAs um, that were not put into the chat. So um, I'm going to uh, throw it to Sam first real quick. Um, what do you recognize, uh, what do you recommend um, as a book for somebody who wants to read and reflect on these topics? Oh, good question. So the two that I would recommend would be uh, White Fragility and So You Want to Talk About Race. Those are two great um, books, short books and great practical tips and good information. They're easy to read. And I'd also recommend for quick five minute read, the Anti-Racism Daily uh, Newsletter. It just started about six months ago and I get it every day in my inbox. And it's just a good quick five minute read and helps uh, keep you educated and informed. It gives you practical steps if you're wanting to stay uh, in this work and be an ally and, and an advocate. So I'd highly encourage any of those as resources. Yeah. And, and there are some resources that were shared in the chat. Um, I will second the recommendation on uh, the book, White Fragility. Um, you know, personally, when I think of systemic problems in healthcare, the reality of a hospital having systemic quality and patient safety problems does not mean every person working in that hospital is a bad person. And I think the book White Fragility helped me understand. I think there is a parallel where you can say there is systemic racism, and that does not mean everybody in that system or that place is a bad person. That was one of my takeaways. Um, Chris, um, you have an interesting takeaway about a strategy that could be used when entering a boardroom or a meeting room, if you can share that with us, please. We'll get you unmuted. Uh, sure. I was just trying to take it off mute there. Um, I think it builds on the point that uh, Sam mentioned about uh, see the gap. And so as you're in those boardrooms and conference rooms where important decisions are being made, uh, look around the room and ask yourself uh, who's not in the room from a uh, diversity perspective. See that gap. And uh, from there, I think uh, you begin to ask the question, okay, uh, given that there aren't any uh, perhaps uh, black folks in the room, people of color, uh, then what can I do um, to change that, that outcome? So, um, yeah, I think uh, that, that puts it uh, uh, simply and to the point, see the gap when you go to the gimbal. That's the first step, seeing the gap, acknowledging the problem, defining the problem, right? Uh, Larry from the audience um, recommended as far as um, other books, Cast and Stamped from the Beginning, um, longer books that give a historical view of systemic racism. And he also recommends the Code Switch podcast, um, which is pretty easily available, a very popular podcast um, out there. Um, I'm looking at the other calls to action. Hugh, you, heard, you shared a number of good calls to action about reading books, attending theater, looking for public events with people from minority communities. Do you have any other specific recommendations? Yeah, I just, what I want to do is frame it as look to the arts, right? You know, we're, we're all active in business and uh, working in our, in our, our working places. But 
artists are often really good voices to open up what's going on in society. You know, I think about the work being done by Youth Spirit Artworks in San Francisco or in Berkeley, working with street youth. And they're turning art into a way to do empowerment. And so just look for the arts that are being done in your community by people who are not the dominant, the privileged group. And what are what are the what are the Latino kids doing in your neighborhood? What are the black kids doing? What's their art? Go see it. Go listen to it. Yeah. Thank you, Hugh. Um, Eric, I just want to uh, reemphasize, and I think this was put in the chat, the scaffolded and uh, anti-racist resources. Um, so thank you uh, for sharing that. And then, um, Jeff, maybe, you know, final point here, you talk about researching candidates, um, putting you on the spot, but do you know, do you have a, a, a recommendation for a website that I'm trying to think back in the day it was, I think the League of Women Voters is still around and they probably have a website instead of the book that I remember seeing with candidate information. What, what would you share? Because candidates do differ from state to state, I would just say do a whatever your favorite search engine is, Google, Bing, uh, do what I did. I just recently moved back to Georgia. So I simply did a Google search by typing in who are my local candidates 2020 and up pops a web, a nonpartisan website. So if you haven't made a decision and you're still researching, I'd say do that. Uh, that could probably garner you some information. And here's one last point that I want to make and I want to make it quick. Uh, if you have an opportunity to coach or to mentor a young new vo voter, or uh, it could be someone in their 20s or 30s or 40s who hasn't voted before, get them to make up their own minds, encourage them to do their research. God bless my mom, rest her soul. I get it. She wanted me to vote Democrat, which I did, but allow people to come up to come up with their own decisions. It's very freeing and it's very empowering when they do that. So for those of you out there who have access to youth or to first time voters, coach and mentor them, get them to do their own research so they can make the best decisions for themselves in this society. Well said, Jeff. So with that, um, brings us to the bottom of the hour and um, we'll wrap up. So DeAndre, thank you so much for um, doing the heavy lifting of hosting and moderating and doing that so well. Thank you to all of the panelists for what you brought to the discussion today. I want to thank everybody who um, attended and stuck with us. Um, so thank you. I hope we'll see you at future um, continuous improvement webinars. I'll just add a final thought. I've already voted. I hope you're able to vote too. I didn't have to stand in a line, thankfully. I really hope you also don't have to stand in the line and that you're able to exercise your right to vote. So please do so. And thanks.